Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. And our guest today is Colonel Merrill Tengestall, USAF retired. Uh, and she is the author of Shatter the Sky, What Going to the Stratosphere Taught Me About Self-Worth, Sacrifice, and Discipline. Merrill, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. appreciate it. I think Meryl might be one of the most uh, unique and unusual guests we've ever had on the show. She is both a Navy and Air Force veteran, a helo pilot, a YouTube pilot, an athletic trainer, and a reality TV star. So we, we've got a lot of ground to cover here, uh, and we'll, we'll jump right into it. Meryl, you're actually the second person we've interviewed in the last few months who mentioned Star Trek as being an important influence in your life. Now, growing up, my uncle would actually send me boxes of Star Trek novels, and Mike and I have spent an inordinate amount of time on the phone talking about the Star Trek universe. What was it about Star Trek that was important to you? So, yeah, Gene Roddenberry, I think, you know, in the afterlife, he might be like, man, this is really cool what I created because it's affected so many people and so many things have branched off since the original series. But what did I learn from it? Gosh, um, so many things. Uh, one, I mean, it inspired me to be an astronaut. Number two, one of the things is that you had this crew, right? So you had this one captain leading this crew, this diverse crew of all different backgrounds, genders, and everything. And they were exploring the unknown, and they would use the skill sets that they had to navigate through that. So for me, I mean, I found that really intriguing. Later on in life, from a leadership aspect, you know, this captain who was in command, you know, who was a little bit charismatic, and he was able to just listen to people, make decisions, and explore, and just probably get away with just about everything, just because he was smart enough and just had the, that skill set with him. So I kind of like that. Um, I also like the fact that you had Sulu and Chekhov who flew the Enterprise, their navigator and pilot. So that was something that I wanted to do. I'm like, dude, I want to fly the ship. So, I mean, it kind of gave me that baseline of what type of astronaut I wanted to be and how to get there. I mean, all those guys graduated from Starfleet Academy. They had a science background of some sort. So I was like, all right, that's what I need to do. So it kind of gave me that template in a way, in a sci-fi way of what, what I needed to do. That kind of leads into the question I had, and I am tempted to make this an all Star Trek podcast, but I'll, I'll spare our listeners that. <laughs> but you talk a lot about wanting to be an astronaut when you're growing up. And was was the path to that military aviation track? Was that for you ultimately trying to get into being an astronaut? And, and what kind of took you further into the military aviation world after that? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, being a military pilot was part of that path, right? So as a seven-year-old, you don't know every nuance. You just know, hey, I want to get there. And there's just a couple of checkpoints that you're going to get. But as you get older and you learn more about life, you realize that it costs money to get your private pilot's license and all those things. So, I mean, the military, just from my financial standpoint, was the better way. And also being in the military, you know, serving your country, I would have been in the military regardless. Um, even if I did not get a pilot slot, I would have gone into the military for four years and done something else. So, I mean, thank goodness that worked out and I was pretty persistent about it. You know, you come into the, the U.S. Navy really during a, a time of transition. And oftentimes you were one of the, the very few uh, female aviators. At times you were one of, you know, two or three female officers on a ship. 
you know, what was that experience like? How did you deal with uh, the challenges that you faced? Right. So coming in in the 90s, you know, there was definitely a push. And I, and I talked about this recently that, you know, the Navy was doing a big push for minorities of women into the aviation field. And I don't know the numbers at that time, but obviously they were low because they were pushing. But I, I will tell you, I've seen one chart for 2020 that lists how many women and women of color that are in all branches of service, include the Guard and the Reserve. And it's for women, it's about close to 7%. But for women of color, it's less than two tenths of a percent. So back in the 90s, it's I'm sure it was a lot smaller. And at that time, the, the militaries were they were allowing females into certain roles that were slated for men. And then even on ship and on the on the subs, they had to start female modding these ships. So we were on the quite frankly, we were on the beginning end of that. So my first deployment on the, the USS uh, Normandy CG60, they had not quite modded the ship for females. So we stayed up by the captain's quarters in an area that they had a bathroom and and uh, shower specifically for us. And there was four of us that deployed in that cruise. And, you know, it was just you dealt with what you had. You know, you're doing a mission. You're not going to complain about it because it's a little uncomfortable. You're not going to complain about it because you got to go up, you know, X amount of ladder wells to get to your bathroom. Or if you really had to go to the bathroom, you use a, a male bathroom and you'd have someone stand guard or you lock it. Right. So. You just dealt with what was necessary. I think, you know, as a, as a woman on a ship and especially as a pilot on a ship where you have ship's company, there's a couple of things going on. You have the air debt, the Airedales and the ship's company. So there's a little bit of a uh, rivalry, good rivalry between us. And then you have the male and female aspect. So it was like a double whammy for me. Like, you know, pilots on the ship were the lazy ones because we sleep all day because we got crew rest. And uh, so, I mean, it was fun. It was good. It it was the mission. So, you know, you sucked it up at that time and you did it because you didn't want to make waves. You wanted to be considered part of the crew, one of the guys. And you didn't want to be, oh, you want special favors because of. No, I just want to be a member and be participating and doing what I need to do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, yeah. So there's amount of stress that's induced because of that and because of a woman in an all male ship, you know, you befriend some men and then rumors start and then all of a sudden you're dating that person and all this ridiculousness. And that's a lot of drama and chaff, chaff, which is extra stuff. And you have to deal with that. And I talk about that in my book and my first deployment. I, I befriended one of the ship's company guys and we were good friends, but the rumors started getting out of control and they started making policy because of it. And that's where it kind of crossed the line. And thank goodness my OIC actually dealt with that and kind of alleviated some of that so I could focus on the mission. On my second deployment, smaller ship, frigate, two women, 13 officers, we shared bathrooms with the men. And it was one of those, for those who know, Allie McBeal moments where in the mornings we get up, guys are in the shower and we're saying, hey, women in the bathroom and we're using the bathroom while they're in the shower. And, you know, we kept it professional. I, I always said um, it was like the brothers I didn't want. So occasionally you see a, a bare butt or two and you're like, oh, you just roll your eyes because it was nothing. It was like, eh, you know, you just dealt with it. And there are days that it could be hard as a woman, but you you knew at the end this was part of the mission and it was just part of what you had to do and deal with. I will say I'm glad now that maybe women don't have to go through that as much 
because of myself and the other women who were there on the beginning end. We kind of set the tone for that. So it was a good thing. I'm wondering how the issue of race factored into a lot of that stuff. Obviously, the military had been racially integrated for a while, but it's not perfect by any means. So I'm just kind of curious, what were the race relations like in the Navy when when you started working on ship? And then as you transitioned to the Air Force, were there any major differences service-wise or time-wise? So in the beginning, being a woman of color race-wise, I mean, there was a push for minorities. So, you know, you're coming into a situation where most people don't look like you. You have a group of people that look like you. And then the feeling is when you walk into a room that people think you're here because of a diversity push. And some people may be listening and saying, oh, well, that's not true. It doesn't matter. It's perceived, right? It's a perception. And it puts that pressure on you. And that pressure to perform is there. And I will say, as a flight student, not only did I need to perform, I wanted to perform at my best all the time because I'm competing with my peers. But I also needed to perform to show some of these sim instructors and other people I deserve to be here. Because they didn't know, hey, I had an electrical engineering degree. Hey, I passed the test. All they saw in my eyes was this diversity push. Everyone who's there had to meet a certain minimum requirement. So there should be no question about that, but there's always questions, you know. So I I had to have my first on-wing really explain to me, hey, Meryl, you're going to be in a situation where when you walk into a room, people are going to think a lot of things. They may think you're there because you're black, you're female, you know, equal opportunity, all this stuff. He says, but you just have to perform. He's like, you were one of the best students I've flown with. And after a while, people will, will stop saying that and they have to say you're there because you're that good. So that's how I always took it. And I, I tell that story a lot because I know how people feel when they're in a situation when they don't look or they're not the same gender or they're just different from everyone else. That feeling is there. It doesn't have to be a color thing. It doesn't have to be a gender thing. It just, if you feel different and different can mean anything. But you just got to perform. In the Air Force, did that change? I would say the cloud got smaller because as you're moving up in rank, you get seniority, you get experience. You're able to navigate that area a lot easier. But still, as I moved into the Air Force, especially when I put on Colonel, going to the Pentagon, you're sitting at the table. Yeah, you're the only one. So the pressure is like when you talk, you have to be on point, on cue with everything you have to say. Because you know in the back of your mind, I think people don't do this on purpose, but they, you know, they build this opinion of you. And I think that if they see someone else who looks like you, they will bring that opinion into their thoughts, into the conversation. I think it's unconscious, but that's how people work, in my opinion. When you're in those settings, again, there's a lot of pressure to perform. And I think more so than for your average person who sees other people that looks, look like them. I will tell you during flight school, when we had that push, it was nice to see other aspiring pilots of color. But I also tell you it was sad because there were five women in my peer group and I was the only one that completed flight training and moved on. So you make a transition and, you know, I, I've known people that have done it, but it is unusual. You go from being in the U.S. Navy to becoming uh, an officer in the United States Air Force how did you make that decision? And then what was that transition like for you? So I made the decision because my last job in the Navy, I was a Navy instructor at Moody Air Force Base. And I was coming up at the end of my tour. I was going to resign my commission. I still wanted to be an astronaut. I was going to go back to school and get a PhD or, or work some avenue. And 
my boss was saying, you should come over to the Air Force. Look at one of our programs, F-117s, F-117s, you know, B-2s, B-52s, all these programs, U-2s. At the same time, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was talking about the U-2s. But I really didn't pay attention to him. I listened more to my commander. And um, I said, okay, I looked into the U-2 program and saw the mission that they did was similar to what I did in the Navy, flying helicopters. I love the pressure suit aspect, the physiological aspect. And then I also went out there, I flew out there on the cross country to see the YouTube community. And I met some of the people and the community was incredibly nice. I mean, the guys were awesome. Not a lot of women in the community, but quite frankly, when I applied and interviewed, it was like, it was like being on the ship. That's what it reminded me of. You small group of people, brothers you didn't want but you knew you would be tight-knit family. So, yeah, I thought the U2 was a, a, a great jump. So once I decided to do that, to do what's called an inter-service transfer, it's, um, there's an instruction for it. There's an AFI, Air Force instruction. There's also a Navy instructions on how you do this stuff. So um, basically, I looked at the AFI, put my package in, sent it to the Air Force. At the same time, I put an interview package in for the U2. The funny thing is that the Air Force came back to me and said, after I got picked up for the interview for the U-2, they came back and said, thanks for your interest, but we're not interested. And I was, I wish I had kept the letter and I started laughing. I called up AFPC because I was like, ah, typical military. One hand's not speaking to the other. Anyway. And I said, uh, AFPC, I said, hey, uh, I got this invitation for an interview. And they were like, ah, oh, the U-2 community, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, they're like, well, we'll see. If you get picked up, then we'll take you in. And I was like, all right, fine. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it is like flying the U-2, a kind of a day-to-day. -day. I mean, there's nothing quite like a U-2 flying that high, you know, that long, dealing with the pressure suit, all that stuff. Can you just give us a sense of what that's like uh, as your job? Right. So I'll put it, this is my perspective. I'll put it from the fact of when I was preparing for a mission. So typically our missions are over eight hours. The day before, and not all YouTube pilots do this, I would drastically reduce my eating because, again, number one in the suit's fine. Number two is a no-no. If you do, that'll be the most expensive bathroom break that you've ever had. Suits cost started about $100,000, so it's a six-figure suit at the time that I was there. I'm sure inflation, a lot more. So I would kind of cut back what I ate 24 hours prior because you're cognizant of what you put in your body. Have a good night's sleep. Next morning, I'd wake up, get dressed, go and brief. We'd brief in the morning, intel brief. Maintenance would come, and you'd brief your mobile. You'd brief about the mission. Then you would suit up. The requirement is that you need to pre-breathe oxygen one hour before takeoff. So get suited up, go out and meet the crew, uh, the physiological support squadron, and they'll put you in oxygen. And the reason why you do that is because the dangers of decompression sickness at the time that I was flying, cabin altitude is at 29,000. As you pre-breathe 100% oxygen, it replaces, for those who don't know about DCS, it's, it's about nitrogen bubbles in your body that get stuck in your joints or lungs or brain, and they cause damage and pain in certain areas. So the idea behind pre-breathing is that you breathe 100% oxygen, it kind of replaces that nitrogen, sort of off-gassing and you go fly, so the reduction is less. You make sure you're well rested, hydrated, all these things. Um, so I'd pre-breathe, they'd integrate me into my suit. I'd hang out until it's time for me to go to the aircraft, which is about, typically it's about a half an hour prior. 
to 40 minutes, depending. The mobile, who's the person who flies in the, uh, who rides the chase car that day, pre-flights your aircraft. So you hop in, you have your personnel that integrates you in the aircraft, the PSD troop or physiologicals troop, and then you pretty much fire pretty quickly, and then you go out and you take off. So um, I typically would not eat until about four hours into a flight. You'd have tube food with you, which is basically pureed food. It's made by Natick Labs. So it's like, um, you know, you could get beef stroganoff. My thing was vegetarian pasta and caramel pudding. And then you could get some caffeinated beverages and caffeinated foods. And I would wait till four hours doing the mission. And typically we would ingress into a place, you know, the trips can vary to where we were going. And once we got on station, we would conduct the mission. I will tell you the flight from takeoff is, you know, interesting until you're above 45, 50,000 feet while you're doing all your checks. And then it kind of evens out a little bit. And then you talk to the mission on scene commander. Um, as you're doing that, you're starting to see the beautiful sights that the U-2 has to offer, the curvature of the earth. It starts getting more quiet. You start focusing more on what the mission is going to be about and how you're going to fly this mission and who you're going to talk to. Around 60,000 feet, you know, the skies start getting a little darker and things just get more quiet, more peaceful, and you just kind of settle into the mission until you get to your operating area and then it's it's go time. So the views in itself are, you know, I've always explained, are peaceful. You don't hear anything except for you breathing. So it's kind of a peaceful moment and quiet time to yourself, especially at nighttime. If you're taking off at night, uh, once you get up at altitude, man, the amount of stars you see is infinite. So it's like you're in a planetarium and you got this whole show and it's it's uh, phenomenal. You want to keep going? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, not, it's maybe, so poetic. Yeah. yeah, you got me caught up in the moment there. <laughs> maybe for those of our listeners who might not be incredibly familiar with the aircraft what types of missions are you doing like what are the operations that you're doing i mean i know a lot of it's probably classified but so the operations of the u2 is intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance so we typically say isr platform the u2 is known as the spy plane but we don't use that term because it sounds too ominous what we do is we have different sensors that take pictures in different capacities so we have the sires system that does electrical, optical, and infrared type stuff. We have uh, the ASARS nose, which does Doppler pictures, um, like you would see in the weather. We actually have what's called an optical bar camera or OBC camera that takes pictures as if you had a Polaroid. Um, so, and then we also have uh, SIGITS, um, which is Signals Intelligence Suite. In terms of ASIP, we, we also used to have um, other stuff, but that's been upgraded by ASIP. I'm using my memory from when I retired in 2017. So if it's off a little bit, do not judge me, people, because I know there's some I know there's some serious AV geeks out there that may be more versed. But signals intelligence, we listen to signals. And I'll just keep it at that. Basically, we're the eyes and ears of the sky. And we take that information in near real time. We send it to a distributed ground station, which analyzes and processes that information and sends it out to users who are requesting that information. And it just depends on who the end user is. And we do that near real time. So uh, if we're talking to someone on the ground who needs information, we can get that to them pretty quickly, especially if they're in contact with troops. So the U2 has been used for 67 years in every major type of hotspot. So to answer the, probably the question you're gonna ask, 
Is it being used now? Most likely, but I don't know how, you know, but the U-2 has been used consistently. It's a, it's a great aircraft uh, with an amazing history, which also kind of transitions me into the next question. You, you've flown a lot of aircraft over the years, from trainers to helicopters to the U-2. Uh, do you have a, a personal favorite? I don't. I always This is probably the worst question to ask me because I don't have a favorite. I love it's like apples and oranges. I love the helicopter. Look, flying off the back of the boat is amazing. It's difficult. It's dynamic. Um, it's dangerous. You know, explaining to someone flying to the back of a small ship at nighttime in pitch black and you see the ship from a distance by a horizontal bar that's stationary, that's turning colors, and you're at half a mile at 200 knots over cold waters. You know, you're trying to keep a scan going and everything's pitch black except for maybe that that uh, ship. I mean, it's daunting. Some people don't like it, but I like it's like one of those, yeah, let's go for me. I love that. I love flying. I love flying over the water. I loved there were times where you saw whales or other things. I mean, it's just beautiful that, you know, there's the beauty in that. Um, I loved being an instructor, flying the T6. Um, nothing is better than a new aircraft smell that hasn't been uh, soiled by students puking in it because they get sick. You know, you got an aircraft with nine hours and it smells great and everything is nice and fluffy and it's everything's so new. And I love flying with the students, both Navy and Air Force. I love being able to impart some of my flying DNA to them and seeing how that worked out for them in the future. Uh, the U-2 is just different. It's difficult. It's challenging to land. Um, it's exhausting when you're flying it. You know, we fly once every three days. You're sitting in the size of a telephone booth. And for the younger generation who doesn't know what a telephone booth is, you're sitting in the size of a smart car for hours on end. And the only bathroom you have is the one right below you, right? So it's challenging and not everyone gets to do it. We have maybe 11, maybe close to 1,200 people now in the 67 years I've flown to YouTube. It's not for everyone. So I enjoy them all. <laughs> no, that's that's terrific. And uh, as as they say in uh, Monty Python, now for something completely different. So let, let's transition for just a minute here. Athletics, particularly martial arts, has been a huge part of your career. Uh, and as you say in the book, helping keep yourself centered. And then athletics kind of helped you transition into a post-retirement career and something that might be a, a little unusual for our listeners. But uh, if you could talk about uh, your experience with athletics and then what that led you to after retirement. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've been in athletics since, man, junior high school. Like I started in track. My mom put me in track, kept me busy. I've been bowling since the age of five. You know, I bowled all the way through college. I was a pretty good bowler. You know, sports is some, it's an outlet, right? So it's an outlet for you. When I got into high school, I was on the basketball team, softball team, bowling team. I did a lot of activities and still kept a pretty decent GPA. As I got older and just more stressed out with the military and stuff, um, I gravitated towards martial arts. I started that in college. I always wanted to do it. I just didn't have time when I was younger. There was a Jeet Kune Do school uh, right down the hill from my college. And I signed up and started working there probably in my junior year. I played basketball for a year in college. And uh, after I stopped doing that, I started doing martial arts and I just got hooked on it. So when I started, I did Jeet Kune Do, did that for a while until I did my first, I think I came back to martial arts in 2000. 
when I started doing Wing Chun, which is Chinese Kung Fu, and I was with an instructor for, I think, a couple of years doing Wing Chun, Shaolin, and it just kind of centered me during a time, that and music really centered me during a time after my Navy days. You change when you do a fleet tour. You change when you're in the military. Um, when you're deploying a lot and you're under high stress and high pressure, that changes a person. I think I was more on edge. I think I got angry easily. And I didn't realize how bad it was until I was out of that situation. And I was able to get back. You know, I was doing flight training as an instructor. And I had a lot more time for myself because, you know, going back to an aircraft, a T-34 first, I've flown it before. It was just basically learning the instructor portion. I had a lot of time to myself and I realized that, man, I was not the person that started. And I can't explain. It's just some self-reflection. And during my instructor time, and I I don't talk really about this in the book, I met a sim instructor who had horses. And I would go out there and just ride his horses because I had a little bit of skills. And I'd just watch his horses and just kind of relax and realize, oh, I got to get back to myself. And then one weekend I said, oh, I'm going to buy a bass guitar, buy a book and, and start. And I started doing all these things and said, oh, I'm going to do martial arts, get back to working out. And that's what happened. So it kind of helped me get back to the original me that I didn't realize was lost until I had a moment to think about it because I was so caught up in the military. And as my career progressed and it gets more, you know, more competitive, again, I stayed grounded in that working out, that outlet to help me. And as I got senior and realized that I'm going to have to do something in retirement, I knew that that flying an aircraft commercially, I love aircraft, but in my career, I do not fly heavies or transports. It is not my thing. Some people love it. They love it a lot, but I'm not the one. I like weapons and I like to do stuff. So I kept coming back to working out because it made me feel good. I got my first certification to train people when my son was born. And I, I kind of enjoyed that. I kind of enjoyed the look on people's faces when they worked out and they had a good workout and it made them feel better. And I'm like, I like this. And I can use this as a way to talk to people and motivate people. I think we have time for one more question. So I wanted to ask you, what advice would you have for people that want to become military aviators? Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> if you want to be a military aviator right now, I mean, they're looking for people, right? So they're, they're looking hard. So all you have to do is go to the door. And just knock and they'll they'll open it and take you in. And the military does this. They do it in cycles, right? They get too many people and let too many people go. I mean, I've seen this the last two decades. I just, I can't help but laugh now because I'm like, it's comical. Come on, guys. You can invest money and know what what the cyclic trends are and and you can't figure out for people. So yeah, if you want to be a military pilot, go for it. It's a great experience. It's a great you know, the training is tough, but you're going to, for the Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, Marine Corps, you're going to learn in the T-6. Man, what, I mean, what better training can you have? You learn all about cockpit resource management. You'll be far ahead those who go the commercial route. You'll have more experience. And then you can use your GI Bill to get your ATP. You can use your GI Bill to do get other licenses afterwards. I mean, when I, when I finished flight school and I got winged, we immediately took a test to get our private pilot's license, my single engine private pilot's license, single engine rotary wing, transport. I also have a commercial license and your instrument rating. Easy peasy. It's only going to cost you 10 years now in the military after your training. So <laughs> to, to do all that, it's amazing. 
Yeah, that, that GI Bill is a great thing. Uh, you, you can also use it to uh, to go get a PhD. I'll just I'll just throw that out there. It uh, it sometimes comes in handy. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. I still have my GI Bill, and people are like, how come you didn't trans transfer it to your your children? I'm like, because they didn't earn it. They're they have their own path. <laughs> I said they have their own path, and I'm not going to assume that. They're going to want to go to college. Maybe maybe they'll want to do a trade, which is equally as important nowadays. So there's nothing wrong with doing HVAC. There's nothing wrong with being a pilot to do an HVAC. There's nothing wrong because flying aircraft is is a, a skill trade that you can learn. And, you know, they're going to go their own path. I'm not going to save a GI Bill for them and they waste it. Like, I'll I'll be irritated. I want them to work for it. And there's going to be a little bit of struggle. You know, it's it's interesting. You talk about you know skill trade and you know being a pilot's a certain skill trade. You know, I've I've laughed. I was a uh, I was a logistics officer in the Air Force, and I've been getting a lot of uh, phone calls and text messages from from old friends saying, "Man, that that logistics thing's really important." You know, having watched the news and what's going on, and yeah, yeah, the American military pretty pretty good at that. Other militaries apparently not so much. You know, absolutely. I, there's definitely a difference between the Navy and the Air Force in terms of like the the Air Force, from my I'm going to say my perspective, everything centers around the pilot. Right. So everything is support for the pilot, the logistics, all that, all that stuff. In the Navy, everything centers around the officers and the ships and how you how you lead and stuff. So I think in the, the Navy, you know, there's a pride with what your profession is. So if you're on the ship and you're a navigator, you're you're prideful. You know, you wear your your warfare pins, you're prideful. In the Air Force, it always seemed like when I would talk to someone and they'd be like, oh, I'm just a loggy or I'm just a nav. And I'm like, why do you say none of the pilots would say, oh, I'm just a I'm just a recce pilot. I'd be like, I'm a pilot, man. Like and I used to get mad. I'm like, you're not just a because you're you're so valuable. Your experience is so valuable. And I'll tell you, if it's not for the supply chain, aircraft ain't getting their parts. I learned that very quickly in the Navy when I was a, a detachment maintenance officer, right? The supply system. If you're on a boat and you're doing independent ops in South America, you want a part that you didn't put in your packup kit, you're screwed. It's going to take two weeks to get there, right? So you can't piss off your supply guy. So when I worked in the Air Force, like people like, ma'am, you're so cool with us. Heck yeah, because you can make my life, you can make my life a living Hades if, if number one, I don't understand that you are equally as important in everything we do, we do together. So my success and my failures will ride upon, do I have the right supply stuff? Did maintenance do a good job? You know, did the physiological support attachment, did someone have a bad day and they didn't check my suit and now I'm up there and now I'm having an issue, right? So we're all in this together. And then if I come back with a great mission and I applaud my the folks who were behind me and who brought me to that point, it's a win-win for everyone. So anyway, sorry, I, I went into that and really hard and, and it was further amplified for the, the trade stuff. Like when I did Tough as Nails, right? So I did that show, did the show in Tough as Nails where you take people from all walks of life, all these trades, and you put them in a situation and and it's like a Navy situation where you're doing these missions, but you learn in the trades, it's so important. And all these life skills that are learned, I mean, you know, much respect for the Mason workers and for the steel workers and all that, because this country would not run if it wasn't for them. So it's like, you know, they're running America. So anyway, I say all that to say everyone's job is equally as important. So never think your job, 
you're not just a don't put the just uh in there. Just say I am and be proud of it. I'm I'm motivated to get out there and do so much right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, I think we're about out of time. So uh the book is Shatter the Sky. What Going to the Stratosphere Taught Me About Self-Worth, Sacrifice, and Discipline by Colonel Merrill Tengazdal. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I, yeah, this was fun. I love this. Uh, where can we find more of you online? Man, my home is Instagram. So uh, I'm under DragonLady788. The reason why I have 788, that's my pilot, my YouTube pilot number. You can email me at mt. Mike Tango at MerrillTangestall.com, or you can look up my website, MerrillTangestall.com. I'm also on Facebook. If you message me, it may take me a day or two. Don't hate me. Again, I'm on Instagram primarily. And then if you want to see some ridiculousness of my life, go on TikTok under Merrill Tangestall. I do have a TikTok account. And then you can find out on Instagram and TikTok why I shaved my head. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Brian, where are you at online? So I am at www.brianlastly.com and on Twitter at Brian Lastly. Mike, how about yourself? Well, I am on Twitter sometimes at Hankenstein, spelled with a T-I-E-N. And I'm online at mwhankins.com. All of us are online at balloons2drones.com. And if you'd like to uh, message us or send us an article for potential publication, feel free to go to balloons2drones.com and use the contact forms there. Our music was provided by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you next time.